You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Carrie Johnston to talk about transgender and gender non-binary patient care. Carrie is assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, and we're really happy to have you here today, Carrie. Thanks, Mariana. I'm happy to be here. So let's just dive right in. What is the prevalence of transgender and or gender non-binary identity in the U.S.? Is this something that's known? So the exact percentage is unknown. What we do know is data from large studies of self-reported survey type of data across the U.S. suggest in the range of about 0.3 to 0.6% of individuals identify this way. However, some recent estimates are a bit higher. What are some of the barriers that transgender individuals face in engaging with medical care? That is a great question. So as any person comes into the medical setting, whether it be a doctor's office or a hospital, we really need to think about the initial office space and the environment. This can start with the reception area and the front desk staff. It's important for everyone in our medical community to not make assumptions and avoid misgendering patients who are non-binary or transgender. There are some best practice centers within the U.S. that really have pioneered in this area. This includes the Fenway Center in Boston um, that notably has made some really um, wonderful questionnaires that are very open-ended. They allow a patient coming into care for the first time to state their preferred pronouns, their preferred name, and gender identity. And now with the advances in the electronic medical records that we all have and benefit from, we can capture these data as well sometimes even in advance of the patient coming into the office. That way, when someone initially presents, um, that first encounter is kind of appropriate gender identity and um, not someone just kind of making an assumption based on someone's appearance or dress. Other things to think about are bathrooms and other signage around our facilities. Is it possible that transgender patients avoid medical care due to those barriers that you mentioned? And can you comment on, you know, how to address gender identity to patients in a way that allows them to feel comfortable? 
Yes, so there are survey data. There's a large survey across the US called the Transgender Discrimination Survey. And this showed that people responding to the survey, over half indicated that they avoided medical care due to perceived discrimination. And this was greater for preventative care than urgent care. So if you think about it, you could imagine a transgender man who has not had any surgical intervention to date. This individual retains a uterus and a cervix, and it's likely that a cervical pap smear with or without um, HPV testing would be indicated based on certain risk factors. For this person, they'd most likely have to present to an OBGYN's office. And these offices very typically are um, female clientele. Um, office staff may not be familiar with greeting or welcoming a transgender man into this setting. So it's um, easy to think how this could be really challenging for the patient. And in fact, literature from within the field of gynecology suggests that even when a pelvic exam and pap smears are done for transgender men, the yield of the cervical transitional zone cells, the cells that are really crucial to test for, tends to be reduced. So it's well recognized on one hand that cervical pap smears are an underscreened area for transgender men. Um, and on the other hand, we as a medical community kind of need to start thinking about ways to welcome such individuals into the medical setting to increase our screening rate for a cancer that can be detected early on. Addressing gender identity in a way that makes the patient feel comfortable really is key here. So thanks for bringing that up. One of the most basic first steps is an open-ended question from any care provider or office um, staff member to the patient, how do you like to be addressed is one way this could be posed. Or can you tell me about your gender identity and preferred pronouns? This is especially important as many transgender individuals report ambiguity when going to the doctor's office, and that can just set the stage for some misunderstanding. So it's critical for the healthcare provider to understand the sex assigned at birth for the patient, as well as the current gender identity, anatomy, any type of hormone therapy or surgical therapy that the person had had, as all of these things inform the medical screening and decisions for patient care. Can you talk a little bit about how we can make our offices and medical care settings more welcoming? Yes. So we can start with the institutional culture, having a welcoming waiting area, gender neutral bathrooms, if possible, and staff that are open minded and don't assume gender identity based on someone's kind of initial visual presentation and rather allows the patient to complete this information themselves is a great first step. In this current area, um, in this current era of rapid technological advances, many questionnaires can be completed on a private portal. Um, this kind of would reduce any type of awkward um, interactions, potentially in front of other patients that could breach privacy. For patients who are less tech savvy, it's appropriate to provide a paper form that they could fill out privately, and then those data could be entered into the electronic medical record. Doctors and all care providers really should be sensitive in providing care and recognize that it's okay to not know all of the answers, but be willing to find out the answers for patients or refer them as needed for more specialty care based on the individual situation. 
many transgender individuals report teaching their medical provider about transgender care. Um, and so it's important for the medical professionals to be able to kind of serve as a home base and help navigate through complex referral networks that can exist or can be a barrier to care. This includes thinking about considerations for OBGYN, urology, plastic surgery, um, and other specialty services as needed to help guide patients through whatever type of affirmation they seek to pursue. A question that comes to mind, you know, given the work that Nika ATC does is are patients with a transgender or gender non-binary identity more likely to be exposed to HIV? Transgender women are especially at risk for HIV exposure and ultimately HIV infection as evidenced by some very large data pools. There was a study published in Lancet that showed a pooled prevalence of HIV in transgender women of approximately 20%. Um, this was an international study, and that 20% prevalence corresponded to an odds ratio of about 50 times the general population. Unfortunately, less is known for transgender men. So given the remarkably high HIV rate that can be present in transgender women and in the transgender female community, it's important to promote HIV pro pre-exposure prophylaxis um, if the risk factors are present. Obviously, there's a lot of heterogeneity and each case is unique, but thinking on a public health level and population health level, this is a really important risk to recognize. Some of the early studies showed a lower efficacy of oral pre-exposure prophylaxis in transgender women. However, it's not completely known if this was due to lower rates of adherence to taking the medication versus a potential interaction with feminizing hormone therapy. So there are opportunities for more research here. There are some exciting new developments in the field of pre-exposure prophylaxis, which I'm sure have been discussed uh, previously in this setting, but these include long-acting injectable regimens, and hopefully having more options can increase engagement with pre-exposure prophylaxis for anyone at risk of HIV exposure, um, and especially transgender women, and bend the arc in terms of new HIV infections in this community. This, of course, needs to go hand in hand with promoting social stability, safety networks, encouraging safe sex practices, as there are many other sexually transmitted infections, um, some of which are on the rise. So how can doctors and care providers form a therapeutic alliance with transgender patients? That's an excellent question. Um, so similar to all patient relationships, providing a supporting, welcoming physician-patient relationship and establishing rapport and trust is essential. Demonstrating open-mindedness and a willingness to learn and then helping the patient navigate what remains a very complex medical system based on their goals for attaining and maintaining their gender identity is key here. Taking a complete social history is also helpful and understanding the patient support network is really very important. Higher rates of depression and suicidality have been reported within the transgender community. And it's been found that a major modifying factor to this is family support. So really getting to know your patient, understanding kind of their day-to-day -day life, to whom they can turn when things are stressful. 
Um, and then finally, we can look to some of the best practice medical home type of models that have been demonstrated to be successful. I already mentioned the Fenway Center in Boston um, as kind of a leader in this field. Another medical home type of model that's had a lot of success is University of California at San Francisco. And both of these centers um, recently have supplied a lot of online references. So even doctors in the community or at other centers throughout the US or even internationally can look to UCSF or Fenway in Boston for um, decision-making support and updates in the literature. So that's kind of a summary. I think it's very complex. Um, no patient is the same as another and kind of gauging an individual's needs and really forming a trusting relationship and being an advocate for your patient goes a very long way. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about the importance of transgender and or gender non-binary patient care and how this relates to HIV care as well. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nikaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaaetc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.